Hi, everyone. Welcome to our uh, Candid Conversation. Today, we're here with my good friend, Jose Ocaño. And it's really fitting that as we celebrate National Hispanic Heritage Month, that we have Jose as our guest. And I also want to acknowledge the fact that I am speaking to you today from lands that have been unseated by the Ohlone tribe in the East Bay. And so I'd like to just acknowledge that heritage as well. And that we owe both the Ohlone people and Hispanic heritage uh, much more than just 30 days or just a single acknowledgement to for all that is possible for us today as a result of all that's gone on before us. And so I'm really proud and humbled that we have an opportunity to spend some time together today, getting to know each other better. So welcome, Jose. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to spend time with you today. Oh, Mary, it's always a pleasure to connect with you. I know we will always have fun. <laughs> As we both laugh nervously, like, all right. I know, like, oh my God, where do we go first? Okay, so the um, why don't we just dive into this? The first time that I uh, met Jose, he was the head of Pima Animal Services in Tucson, Arizona. And Jose, I'd love it if you talk a little bit about what it was like to be in um, in Tucson, in Arizona. Tucson has always been this little um, circle of progressiveness in a, a state not normally known for it. Little spot but of Pima, blue. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But uh, Pima Animal Services certainly changed a lot under your guidance and direction. And I would love for you to just talk a little bit about what that was like for you. Oh, it's, it's always an honor to get to talk about the work that I was lucky enough to be a part of and lead. I always tell folks and contextualize, there was a whole ton of incredible staff and volunteers and community who like really made this vision possible. The shelter in Tucson was, and will always be really precious to me because it's the community where my family is from. I often say my family has lived in this little neighborhood called Barrio Anita in Tucson, Arizona since before Arizona became a state in like 1912. So I always say the border actually did cross us, you know? And a fun fact about Barrio Anita, the first ever animal services that ever existed in the city of Tucson was this little two room adobe shelter in Barrio Anita, which was so crazy that I just learned that like last year. Um, so there's this kismet that feels um, at play, but I started off at the shelter there when I was 18 years old. It was my first job. It was a big deal because growing up um, in the environment that I did, getting a government county job with benefits and a, and a retirement plan is like the gold standard. It's what your family hopes for you, stability, you know? And so I was very excited and, and to, to get a job at the local government shelter. And I was in for a surprise. I thought I was there to help animals because I loved animals. And while that would be true, it was also true that it was a shelter that was taking in about 30,000 animals a year and euthanizing the vast majority of them. And while I signed up to be an animal care technician, my actual job was intake and euthanasia technician. And so it meant that I spent my mornings cleaning, my afternoons usually at the intake de desk, and then um, the evenings euthanizing the animals that we had brought in. And so it was a very intense environment I think because of the ecosystem that I grew up in, I grew up a lot around a lot of chaos, 
around a lot of challenging dynamics. I grew up with a, with a lot of things I couldn't control. Uh, and that was very much the case in the animal shelter. It was a very intense, nuanced, emotionally charged, in some ways toxic environment. And I've learned how to exist and thrive in those mm. spaces, you know? And that's where people like myself who come from communities of color, who grow up with like a background like mine is you come with some grit, some problem solving. You learn how to do a little with a lot. And you learn that the only way to survive is through your familias with your people. And so you, the way I survived working at the shelter was through the relationships that I built, the people there who took me under their wing and that later I could take under my wing, you know? And so I served a lot of different positions when I was there. I worked my way from that role to becoming the director. I like to quote Drake, you know, I started from the bottom, now I'm here type of a thing. <laughs> um, you know, I didn't, that was my trajectory. I didn't go to, I didn't finish college. I've been lucky enough to have some senior level positions without a degree. But going back to Pima, you know, the various roles that I played, each one connected me more to my community, connected, connected me more to myself. Each leadership level that I raised, I had to be more self-accountable, more self-aware, better self-regulated. And so Pima, I grew up there and it made me the person and the man that I am today. And a large part because of the people that I was lucky enough to surround myself with there. Thank you, Jose. That's just beautiful. But one of the questions I want to ask you is, as you think about your legacy in Pima, what is it that you are most proud of as um, when you were, you know, as the director of that organization? Because like you said, it continues to be a, you know, a real shining star for animal service models throughout the country. Yeah, I'm very proud of all the things that like are on my resume. You know, there's, there's, the things that we accomplished, the live outcomes, the building of a new shelter, the changing of the dynamic from a kind of hold animals for a short period of time and dispose of them philosophy to a life-saving model. But the thing I'm actually the most proud of are seeing the people who I've worked with thrive, whether it's there, whether it's in another industry, whether it's at another shelter, seeing the people that I worked with that were vet techs who said, someday I want to be a veterinarian. And then writing them a letter of recommendation, they go to vet school, then they come back to the shelter and they help us develop a veterinary shelter program. That's been amazing. Seeing people like Michelle Figueroa, who's still working there, who started off in the clinic, worked in animal protection and does incredible work still to this day there. That's, I'm so proud of what she has done. And there's so many other people that have gone on to do really awesome things, but more than anything, it's the people that they are. They do it with a sense of integrity, with a sense of cultivating relationships and honoring each other. And that's what I love and what I'm the most proud of. That's just beautiful, Jose. So as um, for the people that are, are, are listening to us, joining us today, and for others that will come, that will be watching this, you know, you've spoken so eloquently about the, um, the fact that people are front and center for the work that you do and the way you do the work. In fact, your title at Best Friends is Senior Director of People and Culture. I mean, like what a no. cool title. I have no idea what that means, but I like that title. That's going on my list of good titles to have. So for people that have spent their lifetimes working in um, animal welfare, animal well-being, um, human and animal well-being, 
And we're focusing so much more now on the people that are connected to the animals in our care. But I think people still struggle with figuring out what is it now that I'm supposed to do? How do I make that transition? Is that really a transition or do I just need to widen my lens? How do we maneuver this new landscape? What kind of advice would you be giving us? You know, yes, like we are a people industry who happen to do animal welfare things. <laughs> That's the truth. So the first is reorienting ourselves to understand like the actual industry we're in. I've always, like, even the term animal welfare, I don't think actually encompasses like the actual scope of what we all are doing here. And I, I do believe we're a people oriented industry. And I'll tell you how some of that has related even from before and now. And um, I wrote about this in a blog that's coming out soon for care. And there was this time I remember we, my mom, she was a great cook. And one of her things that she was known for was tacos, making tacos. And so she was over the stove making tacos, which is like kind of grueling work. You have all the oil kind of coming at you. And my mom didn't know how to make like one dozen. My mom made like five to six dozens of tacos at a time because we had the philosophy of if you need a place to eat, you can come here. And so one day we were at home. She had just sat down to finally serve herself after cooking for hours. And someone came into our house and was complaining about the people who were experiencing homelessness across the street and how just annoying that was. And my mom said nothing. She got up, grabbed the food, walked across the street and shared a meal with these folks. And she told me, you never know what someone's going through. You never understand their circumstances. Be very careful about how you judge people in life. And I found myself years later at intake. And here's all these people telling me the reasons why they're bringing an animal, where they found an animal. And I'll be honest, my first reaction for, for a while was judgment, like liar, <laughs> lies, lies, lies. You don't care. People don't care. This community sucks. And I'm here to, me and my team are here to clean up the problem. That absolutely was a mindset that I had. I made the public enemy number one, you know? And then what I realized is you become what you see and what you choose to pay attention to in the world. And I started to become those things. So it became this kind of self-fulfilling cycle and prophecy of judgment. And when I got myself off of that and I realized it is so important to my human experience to meet everybody with curiosity, without judgment as much as possible, meet people where they are. And that ethos transcends animal welfare. It's what allows me to be a better human and navigate this planet as a good steward. And that's where I say who you are is how you lead. And so I think that the conversation is bigger. Like we need to really work on ourselves to figure out like, for me, what, was, what were the triggers that the public and these people were, were triggering? Why was I so frustrated? Why did I have the mindset that people suck and my job was here to protect animals? I had to do the work to dismantle that, unpeel that, so that I could better steward this because we do work in an industry where animals can't save themselves. They would have already. And we're only going to do it by working with people and meeting them where they are and not doing it with with a complex that we know more or that you know they don't know anything and we need to go in as the experts and go in and tell folks what they should do how they should do it and what they should care about that is the opposite approach we should be curious connect with people understand a community what are your challenges what are the things you're really good at 
in the animal welfare context, where is this in terms of priorities? You know, I think of places like in the South, like where there is a real need for to save more animals. There's a real opportunity to save animals. But there's places like Jackson that doesn't have clean water right now. They have one of the highest per capita rates of, of young black men being killed by unarmed black men being killed by officers than anywhere in the country. We need to think about those things as we're talking about animal welfare and the opportunities there as well. And so I think that's the difference of layering the not just layering, but centering, centering the experience of communities, because we have centered ourselves in the conversation. Um, and that's I think the process we're in is decentering ourselves and understanding that a new approach is what's going to be needed because we need to work in new ways to get new and better outcomes. Thank you, Jose. And of course, my um, three have just decided that they want to be um, incredibly vocal right now as well. So I apologize for my background noise, but as all of us here on this call probably know, welcome to the world of people and animals. They're yes. always going to be wildly dis, uh, <laughs> inappropriate. So um, I love the fact that you have provided us a, a blueprint, if you will, a roadmap for understanding how political the work is that we do. And I know that oftentimes people will say, I'm only here because I wanna work for the animals, I'm not interested in the people. Or else they'll say, why are we talking about these things now? And um, why do we have to be concerned about um, the fact that we are such a non-diverse sector? Why should that matter now? And um, I think the sense of urgency that I feel at my age is one where I want to see significant change happen now because it doesn't feel like there's anything stopping us but ourselves. And so what, to get over those obstacles, I feel like you've given us some really great advice on how to move forward. And um, I love that, Jose, and I'm so grateful that you're here with us today. I also want to ask if anyone has questions in the audience. I know many of you are know Jose personally, and if you'd like to unmute and ask a question, please do so. Allison Cardona, I can hear your question for me. <laughs> You're hilarious, Mary. I was. I'm like, let me just pause. But first of all, Jose, I just want to also say how important it is to see ourselves represented and to see you up here talking about your experience as a Latino and coming from a community of color, just thank you. Thank you to also to Maddie's Fund for centering voices. This work is tough. And um, I guess I wonder what keeps you going and what your motivation is and inspiration and where you find hope. Ooh, okay. If I miss any of these, I'll ask you to remember. <laughs> what was that other piece of it? So I think what keeps me going um, are people like you, truly. And you know, I feel that way because we talk about it one-on-one. -on -one. People like Allison who have reached out and create safe spaces for people of color to come and be themselves and to just talk about our experiences openly. Um, that support network for me has been everything. It has been a lifeline that I really, really needed. I think... The thing that I want to do is I realize how much power and privilege I have. Uh, male privilege, 
being in a senior leadership type of a role in, in animal welfare, like I'm someone who has a platform, you know, I'm lucky to have people ask me to speak at things like this or their conferences. And so part of me now is how do I, how do I share that? How do I lift others? How do I connect other people? How can I be an Allison Gardona to someone else and be just a resource for them? And so that's really where I'm really passionate about that, using my platform, using my privilege, using whatever I have to offer to uplift those marginalized voices that usually don't get centered. And I want to be really intentional about that. And I think what gives me hope is I work with a lot of beautiful, compassionate people who show me every day their ability to evolve and shift and pivot and change. I see that in myself. I see that in my friends and family. And so I have a lot of hope in humanity because I actually know the human condition is, is very powerful. And I believe people are fundamentally good. I know social media and the news will wants us to believe otherwise. That's, I feel like that's part of the othering that happens nowadays. <laughs> But I just believe in human beings and I believe that like the world and people are conspiring to work in my benefit. Did I answer all your questions? <laughs> and more. Thank you. Yeah. So Jose, what would you tell others who want to start a career in animal welfare or human animal well-being as we're starting to um, shift our focus? What advice would you give them? How would you encourage them? Get a therapist. No, <laughs> yes, no. <laughs> Just get a but, Good uh, but, advice. I love that. But in all seriousness, I do believe in therapy. Um, I do think that this is an incredible field. You know, there's a lot of different kinds of work that someone can do. And here's the reality. People sleep and work more than anything in our society. That's due to the industrialism, the capitalism. That's just the way it's set up. So I tell folks, get a mattress, a good sleeping situation, you know, invest in that if you can. And the other piece is have a job that fills up your cup as much as it might take stuff away, <laughs> you know, and that's the key. And we work in a, in a field and in an industry where there's a lot of goodness too. And so there's lots of opportunities to fill up your cup. You're a part of something altruistic and helping people and animals. Um, I think that that's really noble. And I think I love a good noble cause. I think that's why many of us on this call who are compassionate people are, are um, attracted to nonprofit type work. So I think those are all the beautiful things. And also it's an industry like anything else. I think for so many people, they think that animal welfare is limited to animal care type roles, uh, direct animal care, adoption, foster, veterinary. But there is a whole other, like I think about an organization like Best Friends, we have IT professionals, we have fundraising professionals, we have HR professionals and finance professionals who range from all these different things. We have people who work at our hotel, people who keep the grounds and the buildings and maintenance going. And so there are so many different kinds of opportunities and different kinds of jobs. So that's the one thing that I'll say is it's probably bigger and more expansive than the average person realizes. The shadow side is it is charged. And when you do, when you're lucky enough to work for a noble cause, it's one of those things where it's very easy for this work to become your identity. And I think, Mary, you and I were talking about that yesterday. It's a very slippery slope when any job becomes your identity, because at that point, you are basically putting your self-worth 
in the hands of other people and how they think you're doing at work, how they think you communicate, how they think X, Y, Z. And I talk to a lot of shelter directors and this is where they struggle when they get criticism from the rescue community, from the community as a whole, and they're doing their best. It's debilitating because their identity is rooted in their job. And so I would say, put boundaries in place, go into it, knowing with some healthy boundaries Boundaries are especially important with the thing you love because I love chocolate cake. But if I eat chocolate cake all the time without a boundary, I'm not going to get all the outcomes that I want, <laughs> you know. And so even with things that you love, even more so, you probably got to put a boundary in place and just be aware of how the emotional nuance charge of this industry affects you and perhaps even triggers you. And that's where I do recommend, like, have something in your toolkit, whether it's you have good self emotional self-regulation, you have a therapist, you have a meditation practice, you have some kind of practice that grounds you, you are going to need it. <laughs> um, because we need to stay resilient because people and animals, the work will persist and there will always be a need. It'll shift and change and it'll look different. And so for myself, I want to be able to sustain a contribution in this industry. And what I've learned is I can't lay it all on the floor every single day in order for that to happen. So I am divorcing my identity from my job right now. That doesn't mean I'm not committed. It doesn't mean I'm not engaged and productive. It just means that my self-worth is not tied to a performance review or tied to my perception of how people experience me at, experience me at work. Oh, so those are just you. some of the things I would advise somebody. Oh, Jose, that is great. Well, you know, I am a firm believer that... Um, at the end, whatever that may look like for us, um, I don't think many of us are going to say, I wish I had worked more. I just no, don't. You know, it's interesting. Like we've talked about this a little bit. I, this past year, I sat with my mom during the last five weeks of her life. I got a front row seat to what the end of life looks like for somebody. And the, the thing that was beautiful about it is the people that did come that were from my mom's work, it was because of the relationships that she built. They weren't talking about the goals that they met or that meeting or this or that, the day-to-day. -day. It was that they had built a relationship cultivated in trust, transparency, vulnerability. And I'm like, that's what I'm after at work is because it's through that relationship and trust that you actually are more productive and you actually are more motivated and you're more committed to an organization. And so I've just learned a lot in the last year, um, especially you have those kinds of experiences transform you. And I know you, I know you personally know what I mean by that. Exactly. So Jose, I really want to um, ask you this question because I think everybody loves hearing about this. Who inspires you? Who, where do you go to when you need to have that bit of spark and inspiration? You know, there's a lot I've, I've got, I'm, I'm becoming intentional about getting local. You know, like I think last month I would have quickly said Brene Brown, <laughs> like without a doubt. And now I'm like, there are a lot of folks like my husband is someone who inspires me, who's a, just has more integrity than most people I've ever met in my life. People like my mom, I just think back to all the lessons, my mom and my grandmother, I'm wearing this sweater in honor. This is my grandmother's sweater. Um, I think about those folks. So it's like my mom, it's my grandmother. They taught me everything that I value. I learned from them about 
standing up for yourself, having hard conversations, being generous of self, of spirits, of encouragement, of praise. Generosity isn't just about money, you know? They taught me about forgiving and forgiving often. I don't think we forgive enough in the workplace. We have a lot of, we're going to reset, but no one resets <laughs> because we're still having the meeting before the meeting. So no one's reset. So we need to talk more about forgiveness in the workplace. They taught me that relationships are everything in this, in this life, because at the end of the day, that is your legacy, you know? And I think the last thing they taught me was that anything is possible. Constant words of affirmations, mijo, you can be anything, you can do anything. And I thought that was normal until I grew up and started realizing many people I grew up with did not have a parent who was constantly telling them that they could do anything they wanted in life. It's why I had the audacity to believe at 18 years old working in that shelter that I could do something to change this place. I remember one day an animal control officer came up to me and told me, Jose, don't waste your time. We've seen a lot of people like you who care, but you, this place is going to eat you up and spit you out. Like, just you're too nice. So I'm telling you this now. I like you. That's why I'm telling you this. And I thought to myself, nope. And it was because all of these things, fun fact, my last day at Pima, I am walking my box of stuff to my car. That animal control officer who now had been there 20 years at that point comes up to me and she's like, do you remember when I told you you wouldn't be able to accomplish anything here? And I'm like, yeah. And she said, I just want you to know that I was wrong. And that like, that was a really beautiful thing. And so those are the people in my personal life. But then in my professional life, people like Fraley Rodriguez, who now works at Best Friends. Another person who recently came to Best Friends about a year ago is Kristen Barney. Um, she was my boss in Pima. Fraley was my boss when I worked for the SPCA of Central Florida. They cared about me. They genuinely cared about me, which is what allowed me to hear critical feedback from them about how I needed to be better and improve. And so those two people to this day, when I'm thinking about any career move, any kind of life move, those are my, those are my phone calls. Oh, I love that, Jose. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for being part of Candid Conversations. Honestly, we are so humbled and honored oh, to you. have you be part of this. And if there's any way that you and Angel can adopt all of us, we would totally love that because <laughs> I couldn't imagine a better set of parents than the two oh, of you. you. Just uh, beautiful, beautiful um, opportunities for all of us here. So uh, Jose is going to be on Maddie's Pet Forum to answer any questions you might have or feel free to share your thoughts. Um, questions, anything you would like, you know, Maddie's Pet Forum is a safe place for you to interact with each other and with our guests today. And we hope that you continue to come back and avail yourself of all of the resources that we have at Maddie's Fund. And for those of you that had such great comments in the chat, thank you so much. I want to welcome Nicole King. I saw her yesterday on a call and today I love the fact, Nicole, that you're taking advantage of all these resources. Jasmine Bell, all of you, thank you so much. Chris, it's great to see you. Monica, all of you, enjoy your day today. Jose, thank you again. Allison and Amber, thank you for making this possible. Gracias. Adios, everybody. Take care. Gracias.